It's uh, great having you guys uh, here today, and uh, it's uh, great having all of you uh, online join us. Uh, this is uh, going to feel a little bit more, I think, like a, a lesson than a sermon uh, today, but I, I think that this may be um, one of the most important lessons that we'll learn in, in the next year, honestly. So uh, I think it's important, and we're going to look at quite a bit of scripture and uh, we're going to see it kind of connected together. And I hope uh, my prayer is that it's, uh, it's helpful. Uh, I've been looking forward to giving uh, this message for about 10 days or, or so, which means uh, that I'm also uh, full of trepidation and fear because I want to uh, communicate uh, the, the truth of God's word. So let's pray and then we'll get into it, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you uh, for his grace. Uh, we thank you for his promises. And uh, my prayer is that we would respond uh, to you uh, this morning and into the future uh, with belief, that you've called us to believe. And uh, my prayer is that we would do that. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The truth of the matter is relationships uh, are full of both uh, covenants and contracts. All right, covenants and contracts. I want to talk about the difference uh, between the two just for a minute. A, a contract uh, tends to be full of, uh, l- of, of legal language. It tends to focus on what one party or the other party uh, will do, what you'll do, and then what I will do in return. Uh, you could kind of describe a contract this way, if you, then I. Uh, so we use this in families all the time. We use this with our kids all the time that uh, if you, then I. So an example might be uh, if you'll do the dishes, if you'll take out the trash, if you'll keep your room clean, if you, then I. If you'll do those things, then this is what I will do in, in return. I'll give you an allowance or I'll take you to the movie or I'll take you on this trip. I'll give you this experience. If you, then I. And we do this all the time with our kids and our grandkids. Uh, you might be tempted to call it bribery. <laughs> um, for the purpose of today's sermon, let's consider a contract, all right? That's a contract. If you'll do this, then this is what I will do in return. The other family dynamic that, that is at work in every family is the idea of covenant, all right? So Cheryl and I, this uh, last December, uh, we have been married for 17 years, and marriage is a good way to kind of look at, at covenant, and I remember uh, the day we were married, even though it's been 17 years, I remember it uh, really like it was yesterday. We were married in a, high, uh, a middle school auditorium. Uh, because that is where our church uh, that we were serving uh, was meeting at the time. And uh, we had come in the night before to kind of decorate the auditorium. And we spent a fair amount of money on poinsettias because we were being married at uh, Christmas time, two days after Christmas. And uh, we got it all decorated. We left. There were no windows in the middle school auditorium. So we left for the night. We came back in. I was the first one in the building. And when I walked into the room, it looked like every poinsettia had died. And I was kind of freaking out because I did not think my bride was going to be super happy with this situation. So I was like, what do we do? So I moved the poinsettias out back into the hallway where there were windows and where there was light, and they just immediately perked, uh, perked back up. So I remember that. I remember Cheryl walking down the aisle. There's a picture that you'll never see of me engaging in a fairly ugly cry, right? In that moment, it's in my house. You'll never see it. Uh, nobody will see it till I die. Um, I remember going to the emergency room that night, or the first night that we were married, because Cheryl got really, really sick. And there's all, you know, all these memories come flooding to you when you think about your wedding day. And I would guess uh, that's true for you as well. The sights, the smells, uh, the wedding vows. You probably remember your vows. They probably went something like this. I, your name, take thee, your spouse's name, to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge thee my faith, or pledge myself to you. This is not contractual language. Right? On the day of your wedding, you really weren't making a contract. You were making a covenant. And, and here's the difference between a, a contract and a covenant. A covenant is much more relational than legal. Right? It, it tends to focus on this is what I'm promising to do. Right? I'm not putting any stipulations per se on your end of it. This is what I'm promising to do. In sickness and in health, for better or for worse, from this day forward, me, look at me. This is what I'm promising to do uh, for you. And it really doesn't overly focus on the actions of the other person. It focuses on me. This is the covenant I'm making with you. In sickness and health, till death do his part, you know, I'll honor and cherish. That, that's, my, that, that's my role in this. So what we're going to see today is God is going to make a covenant with Abraham that we're going to learn a lot about. And it is a covenant. It's relational and it's focusing most on who God is and what he's going to do in Abraham's life and to bring blessing to the entire world, who he is and who he will be. And it is so important that we understand this because other covenants are going to come throughout the Bible. And I just want us to understand the idea of covenant so well so that we can understand who God is and who he's promising to be. So here's uh, the beginning of the text. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said this, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, we don't know for sure at this point in the text or, or really throughout the text, honestly, we don't really know for sure what Abraham's afraid of. It could be, and just the chapter before, uh, he had gone and he had uh, defeated some kings and brought Lot home. Remember, Lot had been taken captive. And it's possible that Abraham is kind of worried about retribution. Uh, that these guys are going to come and pay him back, and he's just kind of worried about it. It could also be that Abraham is still very concerned about how God's promise to make him into a great nation and, and to give him lots of descendants, how that's going to come to be since he and Sarah don't have any children. And we see in the very next verse, in verse 2, that Abraham is uh, ready to move on from Lot. He sees that Lot is not the promised child, uh, and he's moved on to name a new inheritor. And so we don't know for sure what he's afraid of, uh, but, but he's afraid. And God says two things to him. He says, listen, I am your shield. You need to understand this. As your God, I am your shield. This is a word, a, a Hebrew word that could be used to describe, believe it or not, the outer skin of a crocodile. Most of the time when we think about alligators and crocodiles, we tend to think about them and their predatory nature, uh, their jaws, right? I, one of the coolest National Geographic videos I've ever seen was a deer uh, and an alligator got into a scuffle, and it went on for an hour and a half. And I watched every minute of it a decade ago uh, until that crocodile won. And it was disturbing, and it is seared in my mind. And I thought about looking it up and showing you, but I'm not going to do that to you. And, and we tend to think about the predatory nature, those satanic beady eyes coming up out of the water, right? You know, that, that, that freak us out. But, but really, the overwhelming kind of characteristic of a crocodile is that they have this outer skin, this spiny uh, outer shell that makes a uh, crocodile almost bulletproof. And so God says, listen, says to Abraham, I am your shield. And throughout the, the Bible, he promises us the same thing. He says, I am your shield of protection. And let me tell you about this shield. It's not a promise that God will keep bad things from happening to you. That's not the promise. 
God never promises that. As a matter of fact, God promises that in this world you will have trouble. So he actually promises the opposite. So it's not that he's going to keep all bad things from happening to us. It's a promise that he will be with us. It's a promise that he'll use whatever happens to us for good. It's a promise that he will enact. He'll enact justice when it's needed. It's a promise that his mission will carry on and be important in all things. And most importantly, it's a promise that in the end, he will absolutely win. And when you understand this, when you understand that God is your shield, you know what happens? You become spiritually bulletproof. You become spiritually bulletproof. And if you'll allow me just for a minute, I'm going to move on uh, from preaching to meddling just for a minute, <laughs> right? That I think one of the years, one of the things that the last year has taught us is that the American church is not bulletproof, and we should be. We have become too attached to a politician to be our protector when God is our protector. We have become too attached to our affluence and our wealth to be our security, for our health to be our number one priority, for our leisure to be our calm place. I want to show you a passage of scripture. I want to show you what bulletproof looks like, because honestly, I don't think we have a ton of examples of it in our culture. But this is Paul to the church in Philippians. He is in prison awaiting his fate. I showed you uh, this text early, uh, late, later last year, but this is a guy, Paul was spiritually bulletproof because he understood this concept that God was his shield. Here, here's what Paul says from prison, by the way. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice <laughs> for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. And look at what he says. Whether by life or by death. Are you serious, Paul? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am, going, uh, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Bullet proof, spiritually. Prison crazy Caesars, difficulty, hardship. Paul's like, bring it on. Bring it on. Because I understand that Jesus Christ is my shield. He is my shield. And he's not going to keep bad things from happening to me, but he's going to be with me. He's going to help me. He's going to use it for good. He's going to be by my side every step of the way. His grace is sufficient. He has a plan. And in the end, he's going to win. So God says, first of all, Abraham, remember, I am your shield. And he goes on to say, I am your very great reward. And I find this profound uh, because uh, throughout Abraham's life, we've already seen this on a on multitude of occasions. God has reminded him that through Abraham's uh, family, blessing is going to come to the entire world. And there's going to be land and greatness of name and uh, a nation and all of this stuff. And, and God wants to remind him, hey, just put that aside just for a minute. And I want you to remember I am your very great reward. I am the reward that matters. The blessings are great and they are blessings, but the main thing Abraham needs to remember is that God is the reward. 
And I think we sometimes need to be reminded of this. That we think that uh, through faith, uh, we have this version of health and wealth that through my faithfulness, God's gonna kind of do all this stuff for me. And the truth is he might. And the truth is you might be like Paul and experience a variety of hardships, but the ultimate truth is this, through faith we gain God. He is our reward. Now and forever, and this doesn't blow us away as much as it should because we have lost sight of his glory. We have his majesty, his grace, and his honor. But when we begin to understand who God is, we get into this place that that reward is enough, that reward is plenty, and that even in a pandemic where so much has been taken and we've experienced so much adversity, we still have our reward. And that's important and that's good to remember. Abraham doesn't quite get it. Here's verse two. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? God's like, I am your very great reward, but I don't have any kids. How can the blessing come to be? All right. And the one who's going to inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham said, you have given me no children, God. So a servant in my household will be my heir. He's kind of taking control here. He's going to tell God what's going on, right? Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. (laughs) Let's just clear this up. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And here it is, guys, right here. In case you're going to fall asleep later, I want you to remember this. Abraham believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. You can see in this text, Abraham has moved on from Lot, but he has not moved on from his incessant need for control. Right? He's realized that Lot's not the dude. Right? Lot's not going to be anyone's dude. Right? Lot's not the dude. Lot's not the heir. Lot's not the one. So he says, what about Eleazar? God, since you've dropped the ball, what about Eleazar? And God, in his infinite grace, I love this, in this story, God once again renews the promise to Abraham, gently. He says, a son who is your flesh and blood will now become your heir. And what we're going to see in just a chapter next Sunday is that Abraham really parses these words. And he says, well, maybe the son will be my heir, but not Sarah's. And I think he can probably infer that Sarah's going to be included, but he chooses not to. A son who is your flesh and blood will be your heir. I will make your descendants so great a number you will not be able to count. And then this simple phrase again. Abraham believed. He believed and the Lord credited him as righteousness, that his belief became the overwhelming characteristic of his relationship with God. His belief became the overwhelming characteristic of his salvation. You're like, how were, how were people in the Old Testament saved? You might wonder that. Without Jesus, how were they saved? Belief. Belief in whatever way God had called them, they believed God, and that belief was retroactively counted to them as righteousness. God says, all right, I'll make you right with me just based on your belief. Paul will actually seize on this story. Let me show you what Paul says. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? So Paul's having a conversation about your salvation and mine. And he says, let's, let's revisit Abraham just for a minute, Paul says, all right? So he says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, 
He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's kind of delving into this conversation about how was Abraham saved in the Old Testament? Was it through his works? How, How did he come to be saved? Now, verse four. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing. If you don't like Abraham, let's look to David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from their works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So Paul, in the book of Romans, he is entering into this conversation about how we are made right with God. And he's asking this question, is it through a contract or is it through a covenant? And he points to the story of Abraham who was promised all of these things by God. God said, I'm going to make your greatness of name, great nation, wealth, more than you can imagine. I'm going to promise you all of these things. And the simple thing that was said about Abraham is he believed Even way back before Jesus, his belief was credited him as righteousness. His belief made him right with God. And here's the question Paul is delving into. Was his belief a work? Was his belief an effort on his part to make himself right with God? And this would make Abraham's relationship with God more of a contract than a covenant. And here's what I mean by that. God, I'll do this for you and you'll do this for me. That's a contract. And a lot of us tend to think about our relationship with God as a contract. We tend to think about God, I'll attend church often, I'll give, I'll serve, I'll do the thing. I'll do this, and God, your role is gonna be to do this. You're gonna save me. You're gonna give me eternal life. You're you're gonna save my soul. I'll do this, God, and you'll do this. And Paul's point is, that's not grace. That's an obligation. That's a paycheck. That's a contract. I'll do this, God, and you do this. And you know what comes from it, Paul will say later, is a sense of uncertainty. Because if it's, I'll do this, God, and you'll do this. I'll attend church. Well, have I attended church enough? I'll give. You saved my soul. I'll give. Have I given enough? I'll serve. Have I served enough? And contract leads us to a lot of uncertainty. God's not about the contract. God wants you to destroy the contract forever. God is about covenant. God is about coming to you and saying, listen, in my infinite grace and my infinite mercy, this is what I'm promising to do for you because I love you. I'll forgive your sins, I promise. I'll give you eternal life, I promise. I'll give your life meaning and purpose, I promise. I'll be your shield, You'll be bulletproof, I promise. I'll be your reward, I promise. And God is all about covenant. He's all about coming to his children and saying, this is what I'm promising to do. Let me show you what happens next in the story. He also said to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession. If you remember, Abram, where you were, you were living in Ur and I came and got you. But Abraham said, Abraham's just like you and me in a lot of ways. He says, how can I know 
that I will gain possession of it. And so God said, bring me a, this is a weird request, but go with it. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. It's a weird story. Let's continue, all right? As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said, no for certain, no for certain, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of their Amorites has not reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give you this land. The wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now set away your, how impressed you are with me right now for reading that, all right? I can tell even with your mask on how impressed you are. Um, This was not an unusual way, believe it or not, back in this day to establish a covenant or a contract. So you would kill the animals, you'd separate them, and those that were making promises and those that were entering into uh, the contract would pass through saying, hey, I promise I'm gonna do what I'm promising to do. You can count on me. I'm promising I'm gonna do it. I, I promise, I promise, I promise. Here's my question for you. Who passes through the animals in this text? It is the smoking fire pot. It's God. God passes through, demonstrating this is not a contract with God. Right? This isn't a if you, then I. This is not a contract. For, in God's eyes, this is a covenant. Abraham, I, I am promising you this. Abraham, I'm promising you, this is what I'm going to do. And when you read the rest of the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, God's promises come true. It is exactly what happens. And there's two reasons that only uh, God passes through and not Abraham. And the first reason is, is that God is primarily the one making the promises here. Abraham is called to one thing, right? God passes through. He's called to one thing. And what is that one thing? Belief. God is making promise after promise after promise. And he says to Abraham, I want you to do one thing. I want you to believe. And so here's the question. How does belief fit into a covenant? Because it's clearly very important response. How does belief fit into a covenant? Here's what I want to say to you. It's not a work. Paul makes that clear. It's not a work. It's a response that God makes promise after promise after promise. And we are called in covenant relationship with him, we are called to respond with belief. God says, I'll forgive your sins. We say, God, I trust you and believe you can forgive my sins. God says, I will give you eternal life. And we say, God, I believe that you can give me eternal life. God says, I will give you a full and rich life. And we say, God, I believe that you can give me a full and rich life. We are called to belief. 
And anyone in a covenant relationship with anyone uh, understands this. All right, I think about my family, for instance. So we have contracts in our family. If you, then I, right? Uh, If you clean your room, if you do these things, this is what we'll do. But we have a lot of covenant things in our family as well. Here's what I mean by that. You don't have to work in our family to be fed. You don't. That is a covenantal response of Cheryl and I to our children. We're going to feed you, right? You don't have to do chores in our family to get a bed, right? You don't have to do chores to get a bed. That is a covenantal response to our children of Cheryl and I. Here's the other one, the big one. You don't have to do anything in our family to be loved. You don't do anything to be loved. We love you just because. That is a covenantal response of Cheryl and I. But even with all of that, belief is required for our children to receive any of those things. Here's what I mean by that. All right, you don't have to do anything to get fed. But if I put food in front of my children, they have to believe that's not poison. And they have to believe that it tastes good. And they have to believe that it's good for them. And when they believe that, they can receive it. All right, my children, I love my children unconditionally. I really do. I love them so much. They have to believe it, though, to receive it. If they get this narrative in their head that I don't love them or I don't care about them, even if it's untrue, it will affect their ability to be able to receive my love. So we understand that belief is a requirement to receive the gifts that God has in store for us. God is making promises to you on this very day. But if you're going to receive those promises, friends, you have to believe. You have to believe him in order to receive it. The elephant in the room when it comes to covenants is what about obedience? Because it seems like obedience is a pretty big deal in the Bible. When in, so how does obedience fit in to covenants? Well, when you have an almighty, graceful, benevolent God who's making promises and you have his people respond to those promises with belief and with love, obedience has a way of working itself, itself out. Because one of the things that we believe about God is that his ways are best. And so when God says, I promise you that my ways are best, and you respond to that with belief. I believe that your ways are best. Obedience just has a way of working itself out. The other thing I would say to you about covenants is this. As you read through the Old and New Testament, God's commands are given to his covenant people. God doesn't go around bossing other people's kids around. Right? And you don't either. I discipline my children. I'm not going to discipline your kids. That'd be weird. It might get me in jail. Right? I'm not going to discipline your kids. I'm going to discipline my kids. So God's commands, as you read through the Old and New Testament, God's commands are given to his covenant people. You believe in me? You believe my ways are best? You believe I'm the Lord? You believe in me? Here is the best way to live. Believe this as well. And so God's commands are, the the biggest uh, list of rules in the Bible is the Ten Commandments. You know how that list starts? The biggest list of kind of do's and don'ts, uh, it, it starts this way. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. This is God's way of saying, I am keeping my promises I made to your father, Abraham. You've responded in faith, you're following me, and now let me tell you the best way for this nation to live. It's absolutely beautiful. So the first reason only God passes through is that God is the one primarily making the promises here. 
The second reason only God passes through, and this is really, really beautiful, is that he's accepting responsibility for both halves here. He's accepting responsibility for his part of it. I'm gonna keep my promises. I promise you, I'm gonna keep my promises. He's also accepting responsibility for Abraham and for future generations if they happen to fail, if their faith fails, if their obedience fails, if they fall away from him. God is saying in a really, really profound way, I will take responsibility for that. And guys, in case you're wondering about this, 2,000 years ago, God became a man, uh, became a baby who grew to be a man, and he went to the cross to do this very thing. He says, you have failed morally. Your faith has failed. You have fallen short. And I will take responsibility for that. <clears throat> I will take responsibility for your sin. And I will go to the cross and I will pay for every one of them. And you know what you're called to once again? To believe. You're called to believe. That from that cross, he says, your sin can be paid for. I believe. I can give you eternal life. I believe. I can give you a rich and full life. I believe. Once again, we are called to belief. And so my prayer for you all week, my prayer for me all week, is that we would respond to our benevolent, gracious God who is making promises to us every single day, that we would respond to that God with simple belief. We would respond to him with simple belief and we would say, God, I believe all of your promises are true. Yes and amen. I believe you can forgive my sin. I believe you can give me a rich and full life. I believe you can give me eternal life. I believe your ways are best. I believe you are my shield. I believe you are my great reward. God, I believe it all. And so what I wanted to do to close this sermon out is I wanna share with everything we talked about today, I wanna share with you a couple of scriptures. And in your heart, or even out loud, if you want. In your heart, I want you to respond with just a simple statement. If it's true for you, a simple statement, I believe that. God, I believe. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly, church. He's able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I believe. Second Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and his grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God, I believe. Romans 3, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God, I believe. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God, I believe.
I believe. I believe you are who you said you are, and I believe you can do what you said you could do. I believe. We're going to receive communion together. It's the ultimate act of belief. It's uh, kind of considering uh, the body uh, represented by the wafer and his blood represented by the juice. And it's an opportunity for believers all over the world. You're sharing in this ritual with people all over the world to be able to say, I believe. I believe. And that belief, just that simple act of faith, that belief will change everything. And so I'm gonna pray for us and give you a little bit of time of uh, quiet to just interact with God, and then we'll, we'll come back together and receive it. All right, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. And right now, we just wanna spend a little bit of time telling you that we believe. We believe. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. His body given for you. His blood poured out. I am a practical applicator by personality. In other words, like I want to know. I want to know in a sermon what I'm supposed to do. How I'm supposed to earn, right? How I'm supposed to make myself right with God. I'm kind of uh, type A in that, that way. That Just tell me what I need to do. And today I want us to leave here with just some more simple thing. I want you to leave here and I want you to believe. I want you to believe his promises. I want you to believe his character. I want you to believe in him because I feel like it's taken a little bit of a hit over this pandemic. That we have forgotten just the simplicity of belief. God bless you guys. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday as we continue on. You're dismissed.